Act One, The Princess and the Butterfly, or The Fantastics, by Arthur Wing Pinero. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Persons of the Play Princess Pannonia, read by Aliwanski. Sir George Lamarant, Baronet, read by Craig Giordano. Faye Zuliani, read by Jen Broda. Edward Oriel, read by Thomas Peter. Blanche Oriel, read by Michelle Eaton. Lady Ringstead, read by Sonia. Mr. San Roche. Read by Alan Mapstone. Mrs. San Roche. Read by T.J. Burns. Maxime de Mailly. Read by Remy. Lady Chichley. Read by Wendy Katzhiller. Major General Sir Robert Chichley, K.C.B. Read by Alan Mapstone. Mrs. Marsh. Read by Telly Tiger. Ennis Marsh, read by Annie Maas. Mrs. Sabiston, read by Diana Kennedy. Mrs. Ware, read by Sarah Hale. Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Eve, read by Todd. The Honorable Charles Den Stroud, read by Rob Marland. Sir James Vellereth, MP. Read by Larry Wilson. Mr. Adrian Mills. Read by Andrew Gantz. Mr. Bartley Levan. Read by David Purdy. Mr. Percival Ord. Read by Jim Locke. Kara Pasha. Read by Jim Locke. Mrs. Ugbrook. Read by Diana Kennedy. Folding, read by Alan Mapstone. Catherine, read by Grace Cremines. Mr. St. Roche's Servant, played by Jim Hedrick. Old People, read by David Purdy. The Princess's Servant, read by Sandra Schmidt. Stage Direction by T.R. Love. The First Act, London at the Princess Pannonia's in Park Lane. The second act, London, at Mr. St. Roche's in Grosvenor Place. Some weeks elapse. The third act, Paris, at the Princess Pannonia's in the Avenue des Champs-Élysées. The fourth act, Paris, another room in the Princess Pannonia's house. A month passes. The fifth act, on the outskirts of Paris, an orchard near Fontenay-sous-Bois. Act One. The scene represents two rooms, a bedroom and a boudoir, separated by folding doors upon the second floor of a house in Park Lane, of which one room only, the boudoir, is revealed at the commencement of the play. The trees of the park, bare of foliage, are seen in the distance through the window. On the left-hand side are double doors giving on to a landing. 
a bright fire is burning, a few books and a mandolin are lying upon the floor of the boudoir by the ottoman. On the settee, on the table, and upon the cabinet are numerous fancifully designed baskets of flowers and some elaborate bouquets with cards attached. And in the bedroom, fastened to the bed curtains, is a large wreath of green leaves from which hang the Hungarian colors in streamers of ribbon. The wreath also bears a written message. A pile of unopened letters lies upon the writing table, and on the other table is a lady's work basket. Everything is in perfect taste, but suggestive of wealth and luxury. The light in the boudoir is that of a bright afternoon in February. The bedroom, when first disclosed, is in semi-darkness. Mrs. Marsh, a pleasant but subdued lady of forty, is seated, engaged upon some fancy work. There is a knock at the door. Yes? Annis enters, a childlike girl of seventeen, in hat and walking dress, carrying a bundle of lilies. Alone, Mumsy? What do you want, Annis? Annis, going to her and kissing her, holding up the flowers. Look! Darling, I would rather you did not run about the house so freely. Mumsy, dear, mayn't I present the princess with a few flowers on her birthday? Certainly, but would it not be better to give them to Catherine with a pretty little note? The princess is always delighted to see me. Yes, only you must remember my position here is that of a dependent, Ennis. A dependent, a paid companion, a servant. You are continually calling yourselves names, Mumsy. And you must not forget, you are on a visit to me, my pet, not to the princess. I am certain the princess doesn't want any lady about her to feel reduced in circumstances. She's the sweetest thing that ever... Mrs. Marsh, glancing at the folding doors. Hush. Is she there? Lying down. Out of sorts? A little depressed. On her birthday? Perhaps with many other women, the princess disliked birthday anniversaries. That is a feeling I can't understand. Mrs. Marsh, smiling. No. Does she rebel against growing old because she is so perfectly lovely? You ask too many questions, Annis. Annis, embracing Mrs. Marsh. You know you can trust me, Mumsy. What's her age today? 38, 39, 40, 41? I shall not tell you. Do you think she would like to marry again? She hasn't been a widow much more than a year. Have you had a good music lesson, Annis? Annis, sitting on the ottoman at Mrs. Marsh's feet. When you're in Paris, mother, and you remember your lonely girl in London, you will regret this unkindness. Mrs. Marsh, giving her hand to Annis. You minx. Annis, nestling closer. Confide in me, then. Dear, it may be that the poor Princess Pannonia grudges the many wasted years in her life. Wasted? She married a prince. That's true. 
and lived in a castle in beautiful Hungary. She has shown me a picture of it, far away from any city or town, with mountains at the back of her, and miles and miles of blue-green forest to look out upon. Yes, Annis, but to be shut up for nearly twenty years in that castle. She was in her teens when she went to Monavitsa. Monavitsa. A budding English girl, almost a child, her eyes only half opened to life. Well, if I may have you always near me, I am quite ready to start off to my Monavitsa. With an old man of sixty. Oh, was he elderly? Prince Pannonia was over eighty when he died. Oh, dear. However, she was a good wife to him for those twenty years. One ought not to call them wasted years. Sixty? Eighty? That's not quite my idea of a prince. No, darling, and perhaps he wasn't quite her idea of a prince. Princess Pannonia's voice is indistinctly heard. Princess, in the further room. Evelyn, Catherine. Mrs. Marsh, rising. Hark! Annis rises. Ah, Catherine, open the doors. Catherine, the princess's maid, a portly gray-haired woman, appears at the folding doors. Catherine, to Mrs. Marsh. Madam is awake. Catherine puts back the folding doors. The princess is lying upon the bed under a silken coverlet, her head concealed by the curtains. Who is there? Mrs. Marsh, going to the bedside. My troublesome girl has brought you a few flowers. Annis. Here I am, princess. Going to the bedside. May I wish you many happy returns of the day, princess? Mrs. Marsh puts her work basket away in the cabinet. Ah, pull up the blinds, Catherine. Catherine disappears, and a stream of daylight comes into the room. Princess, to Annis. You have brought me some flowers. These lilies. Princess, taking the flowers. They are charming. Kissing Annis and pointing to the edge of the bed. Sit there. Annis gives a little jump and seats herself upon the bed, her feet dangling. Catherine fastens back the bed curtains. Annis, I am going to Paris the day after tomorrow. The day after tomorrow? So soon? On Sunday at latest. London is too... triste. Would you like me to take you to Paris with your mother? Paris? If you care for it, you shall come with us. Care for it? Mother! Princess... Returning the flowers to Annis. Lay these flowers on my writing table. To Mrs. Marsh. Evelyn, I'll get up. Annis places the lilies on the writing table, then walks about excitedly. Catherine and Mrs. Marsh assist the princess to rise. The princess is in a loose dressing robe of rich material. She is very beautiful, but her form and face are at variance for the latter appears younger than her figure, which is that of a mature woman. I can't thank you. How good you are. 
No, no, I wish she belonged to me. My hair, Catherine. The princess sits before the dressing table. Catherine attends to her hair. What is the time? Half past three. Shaking her head at Annis, who is dancing lightly by the window. Annis? I shall not go downstairs today, Evelyn. I have neuralgia. Perhaps you are wise in remaining quiet. I will see my intimate friends here. The rest must be sent away. Give orders. Very well. The princess rises and comes down with Catherine, who is carrying a pair of satin shoes. There is a knock at the door. Catherine goes to the door, opens it slightly, and talks to someone outside. The princess opens the letters, which she finds upon the writing table. Annis joins Mrs. Marsh. Catherine, at the door, to the princess. Lady Ringstead. Princess, reading the letters carelessly, then throwing them aside. Bring Lady Ringstead upstairs, Evelyn. Mrs. Marsh goes out. Annis is following her. Are you very happy, Annis? Oh, Princess, awfully. You are seventeen, aren't you? Turn seventeen. Huh, is Thenem. Sitting. Run away, child. Annis departs. Kneeling, Catherine exchanges the quilted slippers the princess is wearing for the shoes brought from the bedroom. Princess, reading a letter, giving a little cry of pleasure. Ah! Catherine looks up. George Lamorant. Madam? An old friend, Catherine. Lady Ringstead enters. The princess rises. Catherine retires to the bedroom, where she is seen, at intervals, moving about. Lady Ringstead is a handsome, white-haired woman of fifty-seven. Lady Ringstead, advancing to the princess and kissing her. Well, Laura. How do you do, Aunt Mary? You have settled Paris, Mrs. Marsh tells me. Finally. With a gesture of distaste. London. Oh, London is all right, Laura, I assure you. I had a letter from Madame de Tremorel this morning. I can have possession of her home immediately. I know the house. A rather rococo-looking place in the Champs-Élysées. Will you come and stay with me? I mean, to emerge completely from my shell in Paris and to entertain. Good. You could help me. By all means, my dear. Indeed, I'll come to you at once, if you can make it convenient. That's delightful. <laughs> but London is all right, eh? Lady Ringstead, sitting. Decidedly preferable to Paris. Only under any circumstances I must be in Paris for the next month or six weeks, to keep an eye on my young people. Princess, sitting. Blanche. And her brother Edward. Of course, they are no longer children, but I shall always consider them my charges, poor orphans. Orphans? Orphans. Their father is writing a history of England. Surely you've heard that. Princess, her thoughts wandering. Yes. No man who is writing a history of England may be considered to be alive. Mr. Austin Oriel committed suicide 
that is set down to his history fifteen years ago on the day after he lost his wife she was poor uncle ringstead's what not sister half sister how dreadfully rusty you've got in family matters laura i am glad blanche is to be in paris she and i are going to be excellent friends i am pleased to hear it but what takes blanche to paris she looks after edward i thought you did that not his clothes my dear laura must somebody look after mr edward oriel's clothes he is so terribly abstracted an extraordinary brain the boy has do you know what they say they say the first drafts of lord tentonier's recent dispatches to russia were really prepared by edward that for a young man of six or seven-and-twenty but when it comes to cravats and such falals he is feebleness itself a valet interrupts his train of thought he says he breaks a valet's heart my dear that's the truth of it oh but edward is exceptionally able if only he were a trifle less serious he is private secretary to lord tentonier is he not unpaid yes till the end of the year when he goes into the house and plays the game on his own hook as it were the foreign secretary himself is a slovenly-looking man precisely but tentonier has humour in a politician humour well-disciplined humour will not only carry off a frayed shirt and a vile hat it will keep the gallery under control the gallery the masses there lies edward's weakness on my knees laura i pray that it may ultimately be given to edward to tickle the ribs of the gallery amen aunt lady ringstead rising you've a window open i'll close it the princess closes the window lady ringstead moves to the fire so blanche goes to paris to look after mr oriel's neckties and what does mr oriel do in paris enjoy himself enjoy himself edward sitting my dear edward accompanies his chief who of course represents our poor old country at this farce of an international conference which is to assemble at the quai d'orsay we shall lose everything in time laura england i mean in spite of tentonier's firmness lord help us all edward and blanche have been asked to put up with the tentoniers at the embassy extremely kind well england will see me out i suppose you are going downstairs this afternoon i hope laura princess walking about restlessly no how provoking you are i have ordered edward positively ordered him to call here between four and five so that i may present him to you oh save me from solemn young politicians laura i ask you to know edward i think if i could get him to visit at a few houses and to mix with some more or less empty-headed people i don't mean you laura i have been in london nearly six weeks mr oriel has made no sign of recognition of my existence six weeks some of the people he is most devoted to have not set eyes on him for six years well catherine shall put me into a gown and i will receive him here pausing by the writing-table taking up a note oh yes and then i shall be able to see george lamorant lamorant ah oh, 
something must be amiss with our old friend the butterfly what money or liver i presume i hear he is selling his pictures and bric-a-brac princess reading the note again he is about to wave his hand to england so he expresses it in final adieu thoughtfully poor butterfly i haven't met george lamorant for one in twenty years you'll find him greatly altered and he laying the note aside quickly no i won't let him see me nonsense you can draw the blinds down or sit with your back to the light oh don't be cruel aunt lady ringstead rising <laughs> you two have no sense of humour that reminds me i have forgotten to congratulate you my dear princess giving her hand to lady ringstead across the back of the settee thanks for your flowers aunt mary but you should have sent me a wreath of immortelles fiddle you are wearing surprisingly well i have entered my fortieth year i'm forty forty an englishwoman's forty is not at all contemptible even an englishwoman cannot remain forty oh i am going to be an old hag <laughs> like myself princess sinking on to the ottoman no no you are a pretty old woman i shall fret myself as ugly as sin lady ringstead looking down upon the princess laura you are morbid it is london that is upsetting me what a fool i was to come back to think i should find the same london lady ringstead sitting you ought to feel well here on this spot particularly you were born round the corner i was young just round the corner and pray do you imagine you will be a girl again in paris no but paris is the middle-aged woman's paradise not for imported goods my dear i tried it years ago ah did you feel as i feel now in your middle life don't be inquisitive so you are mortal aunt nothing of the kind it is all right and comfortable i suppose for the woman when she has once laboured across the bridge between middle age and old age but the bridge is such a colossal piece of engineering there are so many spans to it the years leading from forty to fifty i comforted myself during my journey with looking after blanche and edward ah uh, if i had some tie of that kind however we must all submit to the inevitable the luckiest woman enjoys little more than twenty years of splendour and triumph i had my twenty years and a few over you i hope have still some of these years before you it is unfair i have lost my twenty years lost them dropped them one by one like pearls from a string at mornovitza it was unfortunate that prince pannonia's health gave way as it did most unfortunate most you had a dull time doubtless for exactly nineteen years and eleven months i was nothing but half nurse half secretary to a delicate recluse i wrote pannonia's letters he was a voluminous correspondent on many uninteresting subjects gave my arm to him when he walked about our estate and by his side when he drove out for twenty years no visitors you know 
Oh, I know you never invited me. Pannonia hated to be disturbed, to have one day made unlike another. You yourself visited. Four times we went to Vienna and to Budapest. On each occasion he was extremely unwell, and twice, for the waters, to Gastein. Those wretched waters nearly killed him. Perhaps you ought to have persevered with them. Princess, reproachfully. Aunt. Laurie, why did you marry him? People allowed me to do it. It was an excellent marriage. Going to Lady Ringstead and putting an arm about her shoulders. Oh, aunt, don't think I am speaking against Pannonia. He was invariably kind to me, poor dear. Lady Ringstead, patting her hand. Glad, glad. Princess, staring before her with watery eyes. I respected him, yes, and loved him. I did. He was a very good father. He... gracious! I never heard... Shh! You don't understand. A very good father to me. How stupid I am. Looking up at her. Tut, tut, tut. You're not going to grizzle. Catherine, who has disappeared from the bedroom some time previously, now enters. Mrs. St. Roche? Mrs. Sabaston? Mrs. St. Roche and Mrs. Sabaston enter. Mrs. St. Roche is eight and thirty, petite, eager, restless. Mrs. Sabaston is a stout, handsome woman of forty, with big, limpid eyes and a heavy, placid air. Both ladies are richly and elegantly dressed. Catherine withdraws. Mrs. St. Roche, meeting the princess. Every good wish of my heart, Laura. Princess, kissing her. It is sweet of you to come. I have brought Edith. I found her loafing in the park. To Lady Ringstead. How do you do, Lady Ringstead? Princess, kissing Mrs. Sabaston. Delighted. It doesn't matter, perhaps, but Isabel is not in the least accurate. Mrs. St. Roche, examining the flowers. What wonderful orchids. Princess, to Mrs. Sabaston. You know my aunt, Lady Ringstead? To Lady Ringstead, who has risen. Mrs. Sabaston. Mrs. Sabaston goes to Lady Ringstead. They shake hands. Mrs. St. Roche over the flowers. And these anemones. Exquisite. Going behind the screen. <gasps> More flowers. Mrs. Sabaston to Lady Ringstead. Isn't it a little rough, Lady Ringstead? Days ago I made up my mind to see Laura on her birthday, and now Mrs. St. Roche gives out that she picks me up casually in the park and drags me along with her. Didn't I find you sitting upon a chair looking at nothing? Not at nothing. I was contemplating my dinner. In the park? Yes. I have had a disgusting lunch. Whenever I am put out in that way... I sit for a few moments quietly and conjure up my dinner. It is a faculty I have. Princess, taking a bouquet and a basket of flowers from the top of the cabinet. Mrs. St. Roche and Mrs. Sabaston send me these, aunt. Exceedingly beautiful. 
Mrs. St. Roche, entering the bedroom and examining the wreath attached to the bed curtain. <gasps> May one look at this? Where has this come from? Princess, replacing the flowers on the cabinet. From Mornavitza. Catherine hung it there. Foolish woman. Mrs. Sabiston, examining the card attached to the wreath. What a spidery-looking language. It means... From where the leaves still listen for a beloved footfall. <gasps> Charming. The gardeners have picked those leaves from a narrow little alley in an Italian garden at Mornovitza. I walked there alone nearly every morning for twenty years, for half an hour, while poor Pannonia was having his bath. How nice of your people to recollect. Did you get my note? Princess, turning over her letters. Ah, uh, yes. You are coming to the theatre with me tonight? Princess, shaking her head. The neuralgia is troublesome again. You may as well have your neuralgia in my box. Edith has promised. To come on late. Theatres interfere with dinner so horribly. To Lady Ringstead. Don't they? I confess I hardly care to sit down to dinner at half-past six. Oh, I don't mind that. But I cannot undertake to rise at half-past seven. Mrs. St. Roche to the Princess. There will be no men. My husband has a rowdy little party at home. To say goodbye to Sir George Lamarant. You won't come with me? Excuse me tonight, dear Isabel. You are perfectly horrid when you choose, Laura. You will never meet Miss Suliani. Isn't she delightful, Edith? Quite. Such a sweet person, Lady Ringstead. Miss... Zuliani, a friend of Isabel's. Mrs. St. Roche to Lady Ringstead. Mr. St. Roche calls her La Belle Cosmopolite. She is the daughter of an Englishwoman who married a poor Italian musical man, and she has lived all over the world. Sir George Lamarant knew the parents, and he has asked me to interest myself in Faye. Faye? Faye Zuliani. Catherine enters. Lady Sheeshaw. Lady Chichely enters, a pretty, simple-mannered, daintily-dressed little woman of fifty. Catherine goes into the bedroom. Princess, meeting Lady Chichely gladly. Ah! Lady Chichely, kissing the princess. I have run in to wish you many happy returns of the day, and to... Turning to Lady Ringstead and kissing her. Why, how are you, Mary? To Mrs. St. Roche. Isabel. Kissing her. What a pretty frock you have on. To Mrs. Sabiston, who comes to Lady Chichely. Who is it? Kissing Mrs. Sabiston. Dear heart, it's Edith Sabiston. Oh, this is pleasant meeting you girls. You are always so cheerful, Winifred. An example for younger people. Lady Chichely, sitting. <laughs> Not always cheerful, but today... Well, I am very happy today. My husband has telegraphed to me from Port Said, ordering me to meet him at Brindisi on Saturday. 
I am off tonight. Lady Ringstead sits. Mrs. St. Roche, sitting. Sir Robert is coming home? Lady Chichely, nodding. On leave. A long drag, Winifred, to Brindisi. Why not let him join you at the Riviera? Under the eyes of everybody. No, dear. From Brindisi we intend taking the train to Taranto. Taranto? A hole? Certainly. But Bob and I must hide ourselves somewhere for a week or two. Why? Hide. Lady Chichely, slightly embarrassed. Until we... until we can look people in the face. I don't... Lady Chichely to Mrs. St. Roche and Mrs. Saviston. Ah, oh, my dears, you must go back to the time of your honeymoons to understand. You are fortunate girls who are never separated from your husbands. But the disagreeable doctors have always forbidden me, India. And for many years, Sir Robert and I have met only at long intervals. You are not quite accustomed to one another? We are naturally a little constrained, a little bashful when we meet. I yearn to see him again, but almost dread it. It is so very awkward for both of us. <laughs> ah. The princess, Mrs. St. Roche, and Mrs. Sabiston laugh lightly. The princess bends over Lady Chichely and kisses her. Lady Chichely going to the fireplace in a flutter. Now, 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 I won't be laughed at. Lady Ringstead joining Lady Chichely. Certainly not. Looking at the clock. Laura, don't forget you have to dress. Princess calling. Catherine. Catherine appears in the bedroom. I'll dress quickly. Draw the screen. Catherine arranges the screen so that it completely covers the opening to the bedroom. Princess, to everybody, as she unfastens a bracelet. Do go on chattering. Let me hear the hum of your voices. Lady Chichely, suddenly coming to the princess. Ah, oh, how stupid! Producing a jeweler's case from her pocket. I have a bangle for you, Laura. Oh, Lady Chichely. It's nothing. You possess everything. Taking the bangle from its case. But the idea may amuse you. You see, simply a plain gold band with little coins attached to it. Princess, taking the bangle. Very pretty. They are merely gilt threepenny pieces. But count them. Princess, attempting to count the coins. There are so many. Lady Chichely, smilingly. I had better tell you, there is one for each year. Each year? Lady Chichely, nodding. Each year. Mrs. St. Roche and Mrs. Saviston unobtrusively move away to the window. Lady Ringstead gazes into the fire. Lady Chichely putting the bangle on the princess's wrist. One threepenny piece for each of your birthdays. I shall add a fresh coin every February, for as long as I am spared to do so. There is a brief silence, 
The princess looks at the bangle piteously, then towards her friends and Lady Ringstead. Lady Chichely, also looking round, puzzled. What is the matter? Princess, impulsively, with a laugh that is half pathetic, throwing her arms around Lady Chichely. Oh, you dear, simple little woman. She runs away, passes behind the screen, and disappears into the bedroom. Lady Chichely, hurrying to the screen. What is it? Have I done something wrong? Princess, from the other side of the screen. No, no, but Aunt Mary and I have been talking over the terrors of middle age. Mrs. Saviston, going to the screen. Laura, how could you? The topic is too painful. Ah, oh, let me have that horrid bracelet again. Never. <laughs> I must get used to the weight of it. Her voice receding. Catherine. Oh, Mary, I am exceedingly sorry. Rubbish. Women must not be cowards. Lady Chichely, penitently to everybody. You see, dears, I have not thought very much about middle age. Mrs. St. Roche, a little impatiently. It is the woman's fault if she has any middle age, Lady Chichley. Really? Pray tell me how one is to avoid it. Mrs. St. Roche, clenching her hands. Fight it. Don't admit it. Never admit it. To others. Even to yourself. Watch yourself, hour by hour. Signs of middle life are only weeds in the garden. Root them up the moment they appear. That applies to outward invisible signs. Science deals with them. We all know that. Lady Chichely, distressed. Oh, dear me. But the subtle signs, dear Mrs. St. Roche, weeds which elude the vigilance of the gardener. Mrs. St. Roche, with a shrug of the shoulders. Of course there are good and bad gardeners. Subtle signs. Take the most unerring and insidious symptom of middle age in a woman. What is that? An appetite for dinner in other people's houses. Mrs. Sabaston, turning away, wounded, sitting on the settee. Oh, Lady Ringstead. <sighs> Lady Ringstead, going to her. My dear, pardon me. But then you have always enjoyed an excellent appetite, if I recollect rightly. Never so violent as now. <laughs> Edith, you are a bad gardener. Mrs. Sabaston, desperately. Oh, I don't care. I believe the best way to get through middle life is to be selfish and lazy and grossed out and lethargic as I am doing. You believe nothing of the kind. I do. And I mean to yield to hunger and to sleep on every possible occasion. Mrs. St. Roche, walking about. Usually, you know, the career of a woman who starts with possessing some attractions is divided into three stages. Indeed. Yes, and the clever woman's triumph is in prolonging the first stage so that her life has no time to admit the second. What are your three stages, pray? 
first, the period during which people willingly offer their devotion. People? Men? Mrs. St. Roche, evasively. People. That is the happy stage. Certainly. That is happiness. The second stage is reached when she has to exact devotion. Bending over the flowers, her face averted from the others. That is wretchedness. Lady Ringstead, eyeing Mrs. St. Roche. Yes, that is wretchedness. The third stage, when she neither receives nor demands it. That is contentment. Lady Chichely to Mrs. St. Roche. When she is satisfied with the simple affection of husband, children, or friends. Ah, my dears, there is the haven to make for. Mrs. St. Roche, brushing past Lady Chichely and Lady Ringstead. Of course, of course. At the fireplace, looking at the clock. Oh, I must be going. A woman servant enters, showing in Blanche and Edward Oriel. Blanche is a fresh, buoyant, unaffected girl of three and twenty. Edward is an intellectual-looking young man of about twenty-seven with a grave air. He is very soberly dressed in a fashion that distinguishes him from the man about town. The servant retires. Blanche, advancing to Lady Ringstead, nodding to Mrs. St. Roche and Mrs. Sabiston as she passes them. How do you do? How do you do? Kissing Lady Ringstead. Well, auntie. Going to Lady Chichely. Good afternoon, dear Lady Chichely. My dear Blanche. Lady Ringstead, meeting Edward and looking him up and down. You are a little pale, Edward. You feel well? Edward, with a smile. Quite well. Lady Ringstead, giving a little twist to the bow at his neck. That's right. Blanche joins Mrs. St. Roche and Mrs. Sabiston by the fireplace. Edward advances to Lady Chichely and shakes hands with her. Edward, do you recollect fixing an afternoon to come and drink tea with me nearly twelve months ago? Ah, I hope I sent an apology. Apology? Yes, but you knew I had got together some of the sweetest girls in London to meet you. Blanche told me that some ladies... Silly child. She let it out just as you were leaving the house to come to me, I heard. And then you put down your hat and ran upstairs, saying you were busy. A year ago. Be kind and allow that I may have forgotten the precise circumstances. Your aunt is trying to catch your eye. Go to your doom. Lady Ringstead, who has joined the others. Edward! Edward and Lady Chichely move to the fireplace. Mrs. Sebiston, Mrs. Ronaldson Roche, Mr. Edward Oriel. Where is Laura? In the next room. Blanche, going to the screen, calling. Laura! Princess, in the distance. Ah, Blanche, dear. Many happy returns of the day. A bare white arm is extended from behind the screen. Thanks.
Blanche, taking the princess's hand and speaking quietly. My brother Edward is here. Ah! The arm is withdrawn, and the folding doors are closed sharply. Lady Ringstead joins Blanche. They talk together by the settee. Mrs. Marsh enters, followed by two women servants who carry tea, etc. The servants place their trays upon the table and withdraw. Mrs. Marsh seats herself at the table and pours out tea. Edward attends upon the ladies assembled round the fire. Lady Ringstead, to Blanche, while this is going on, watching Edward. Edward has rather a smart air for him this afternoon. He reflects credit upon you, dear. Thanks, Aunt. I could wish that he would button his coat, and perhaps... Perhaps I'd like to see the trouser conceal a little more of the boot. I will tell Edward. Oh, how annoying! On one side, too much of the boot is hidden. It struck me it was so coming upstairs. This is extremely careless of you, Blanche. Auntie, some matters I must leave to Edward. Dear fellow, it delights me to watch him playing chevalier. A cup slips on its saucer and falls. There are movements, apologies, and a little laughter among the tea-drinkers. Lady Ringstead, stonily. Whose clumsiness was that? Blanche shakes her head. Edwards? I hope not. Lady Ringstead sits gloomily. Aunt, it is my impression that Edward will never be quite at his ease with women. Sometimes I fancy he positively dislikes them. It isn't desirable that he should like them, only that he should talk to them, command them. The man who can retain the attention of half a dozen women for five minutes has the power of holding the House of Commons for an hour. Suddenly, Good heavens! Look at those women now! They're not listening to Edward! They're not listening to him! Poor boy! He isn't saying anything, aunt! Edward, approaching Lady Ringstead. May I bring you some tea? Lady Ringstead, rising. I'll come to the table. Here is Laura. The princess enters, beautifully gowned. She meets Edward. Princess, giving him her hand. Mr. Oriel. Blanche and the princess greet each other. Then Blanche and Lady Ringstead join the group by the fireplace and drink tea. I believe I saw you once, when you were a very small boy. In Han's place. Strange to say, I remember you. Princess, smiling. Older people than yourself don't make me such speeches. Pardon me. I mean, I was a child of five, six. Of course. What do you remember of the occasion? I remember that our visitor was exceptionally tall and slender, that it hurt my neck to stare up at her. Thoughtfully, not looking at her. I remember comparing you, after you had gone, with my mother. Princess, with slightly elevated brow. Really? My poor mother was youthful looking to the last. Yes, yes, very delicate and willowy. As you were then. Princess, with a frown, abruptly turning to Mrs. Marsh, who comes with a cup of tea. Thank you. I will have some tea. 
Mrs. Marsh places the tea upon the table and then joins the group. The princess sits and motions to Edward to sit. So you are a very serious person nowadays, they tell me, Mr. Oria. Edward, sitting. Ah, Lady Ringstead. Yes, I think she regards extreme seriousness in budding statesmen with some distrust. To be earnest is to be serious. Yet seriousness is not, necessarily, earnestness. Seriousness may be, no matter. Dullness, heaviness, stupidity. Perhaps it is to the advantage of a clever man's seriousness that it should be lighted up occasionally, just to show what it is really composed of. She drinks her tea, looking away from him. His face now shows that he has become interested in her. He is sitting, elbow on table, gazing at her curiously. There is a brief silence. Princess, turning to him. Eh? He takes her empty cup from her, replacing it on the table. Edward, drawing nearer to her. Princess, I have little confidence in the man who can punctuate his ponderous periods with strokes of fun. Examine the dual nature. You will find it but half a nature. And besides, don't you feel that this quality of humour, this saving grace of life, which Lady Ringstead is always insisting upon, really acts upon people and things as the corruptive particles in the air act upon the details of a fine piece of architecture? His eyes still upon her. For an example, take beauty in women. Even beauty in women must be looked at with serious eyes. Humour anticipates its defacements. You are serious. I see it. Princess, rising, uneasy under his gaze. I... Oh, yes. I have been serious for twenty years. Edward, rising. Ah. But hardly a day has passed when I have not shut myself up in my room for a few moments to shriek with laughter. Laughter? At what? Princess, with a shake of her head. <laughs> if you choose, we shall meet in Paris, Mr. Oriel. Aunt Mary will tell you. She will be with me. Let us see you often and teach you how to laugh. You are to be in Paris. My friends are going. Meeting Lady Chichely, Mrs. Sabiston, and Mrs. St. Roche. Lady Chichely to the Princess. These girls have promised to take me home. Princess, kissing Lady Chichely. Send me an address where I may write to you. So good of you to come today. Kissing Mrs. Sabiston and Mrs. St. Roche. And you, dear. And you. Lady Chichely, shaking hands with Edward. I shall never ask you to tea again, Edward. Please. Mrs. Sabiston and Mrs. St. Roche bow to Edward. The princess walks with them to the door. Lady Ringstead and Blanche join Edward. Lady Ringstead to Edward. I have to go to Down Street, Edward. I need not drag you and Blanche away. Oh, Edward must do some shopping this afternoon, Aunt. I insist upon it. Princess at the door. Goodbye. Goodbye. Lady Chichely, Mrs. Sabiston, and Mrs. St. Roche disappear. The princess rings the bell. 
Lady Ringstead, kissing the princess. I shall endeavour to see you tomorrow, Laura, to settle dates. Blanche kisses the princess. Princess to Blanche. Must you go? Accompanying Lady Ringstead and Blanche to the door. Tomorrow, aunt. If possible. Lady Ringstead and Blanche go out. Princess shaking hands with Edward, who follows them. Nous, nous reverons à Paris sans Edu. In Paris, yes, but to be serious. Princess, laughingly. No, no, to laugh. He bows and goes out. Princess, going to the writing table. Now, help me with my letters, Evelyn. Suddenly. Why? I have forgotten to tell Edith and Bella that we are leaving London. She makes for the door quickly as Catherine enters. Sir George Lamorant. Sir George Lamorant enters, coming face to face with the princess. She gazes at him with widely open eyes for a moment, pained, astonished. Catherine withdraws. Sir George is a handsome man of forty-five, with a thin, delicate-looking frame, a pale face, and hair almost completely silvered. His manner is light and charming, and he is perfectly attired. Sir George, after the silence. I read your thoughts. Princess, giving him her hand. Ah, one in twenty years. Sir George, making a grimace. Ugh. And why have you not called until today? I was shy of reminding you by my hoary looks of those one and twenty years. Gallantly. Time has flown high above you, princess. Mrs. Marsh retires into the bedroom. Princess, sitting. Much has happened since we last met. Sir George, sitting. One in twenty years have happened. I mean the baronetcy, and your uncle's money, falling to you so unexpectedly, you're finding yourself independent of the humdrum colonial office. A pleasant humdrum colonial office. I ought to have written to you when I heard of your good fortune. With a smile and a shrug of the shoulders. But I didn't. You received my few lines of congratulation a year ago, I hope. Princess, stonily. I received a message of your sympathy from you after poor Pannonia's death. Ah, I'm glad you had it. Blankly. Uh, I beg your pardon. What did I say? Princess, looking away. You said congratulation. Sir George, his hand to his brow. Heavens, this is the result of Broadbent forbidding me sugar and champagne. Princess, rising. Let me give you some sugarless tea, George. Sir George, rising. Thanks, do. She goes behind the table and pours out tea. I heard of you incarcerating yourself after your bereavement at Schloss Stolweisen, with the old Countess Kasaski. I desire to spend my first year of widowhood in that way. Suti, what a year you must have passed. 
for shame. Handing him a cup of tea. I had lost a good husband. They sit again. Ah, of course. Drinking his tea. But now, now, at last, you intend to enjoy life. Intend? Eh? Princess, hastily. About yourself. You are going abroad. Yes. But never to return to your beloved London. Surely you don't mean that. I do. Why? Sir George, placing his cup aside. To get rid of the tombstones. Tombstones? My beloved London's full of them. Piccadilly, Pall Mall, Bond Street. They are all paved with tombstones. George. Laura. What's the matter? Forty-five is the matter. Middle age is the matter. Princess, under her breath, staring at him. Middle age? Your faithful butterfly, a suggestive nickname, my dear princess, has come to his autumn. His body shrivels. His poor wings are little else than dust. Oh ho! Vanitas vanitatum. Ehu fugatse. And all the rest of it. What is there left for forty-five? Why, I have thought that such moods are purely feminine moods. So have I, until recently. And now I've made the discovery. A man is as human as a woman. Princess, reproachfully. As weak. Upon my soul, I believe there isn't much to choose between them. Much to choose. They're alike, absolutely alike. The same tide rises in both, rises, beats merrily against their ribs for a few years, and then ebbs. It's an uncomfortable sensation, princess. I can tell you, to hear the lapping of that tide as it turns within you and begins to go down. Unnoticed by him, with a movement of pain, she half rises, then sits again. He jumps up. Phew! Shaking himself. Ha, 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 ha! At any rate, I've arrived at the conclusion that no man should be old in his own country. Merciful powers! Every friend I have is developing some infirmity or other. This morning I hear that Rawson has phlebitis and will never do more than crawl with a stick. Peters writes me he no longer comes out nights. Horrible! And, at the same time, while familiar things pain me, the sight of a new face or of any fresh object throws me into a sullen, resentful rage. They've knocked down my chemist's shop, where I have bought perfumes for twenty years, and stuck another, a red brick pile, in its place. And today, when I venture there with my doctor's latest prescription, they stare at me from behind the counter, as much as to say, Hello? Are you still going about? Why, you used to come to the old shop. And there's no more 
eighty-four champagne at my club. Not that it would make much difference to me if there were. But it's all eighty now. Fancy, no more eighty-four. Walking away to the window, where he stands looking out, his back towards her. And so I'm off, out of it, to places which recall nothing, to places unknown to me, where I am unknown, where I can pretend that I've never been young, that I've always, always been an old fellow, and that I like it. Oh, George, one would think today is your birthday also. Is it? Sir George, turning to her. My birthday? No. <laughs> it is mine. Sir George, looking round. Flowers. Removing an orchid from his coat and presenting it to her. A thousand good wishes. Princess, laying her hand upon his sleeve. My dear old friend, oh! Oh, this folly! Her grip tightening. Come, I let us look forward to the time, you and I, when we shall have waded through the slough of despond. Sir George, in astonishment. You and I? What? My dear princess, not you already. She nods, rises with a little hysterical laugh. <laughs> No, 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 no. <laughs> you are still a fresh, beautiful woman. Shh, no more. Waving the subject away with a gesture. Ah, uh, when do you leave London? Um, well, frankly, that rather depends upon the advice, help, perhaps, that I'm going to ask you to give me. Help. Sitting. Command me, George. In the first place, I must contrive to gain your sympathy for a young lady. A young? A Miss Zuliani. Miss Faye Zuliani. You've met her. No, but Mrs. St. Roche wished me to go to the theater tonight to make Miss Zuliani's acquaintance. Who is Miss Zuliani? Sir George, after a short pause. Don't be angry with me. Once upon a time, you were very fond of my brother. She rises. If Rupert hadn't been so devilish poor, he might not have had to die in a foreign swamp, and you might have been my sister-in-law. Well, that's how I've always understood the case. She stands looking into the fire. De mortuis, princess, you guess? Is this girl Rupert's daughter? Yes. She sits upon the settee without speaking. The mother was a Miss Wentworth. I knew her, a graceful creature with curiously beautiful hands. She used to sit to Bogoreau and other big painters for her hands. About a year after the child was born, the lady married a flashy Italian and went off with him to Milan, a violoncello player, a Mr. 
Flavio Zuliani, a black brute. When was the child born? She's nineteen. Your brother s soon forgot. Never. Only his life went to hell after... Looking at her. After... Oh, go on. The black brute, Mr. Zuliani, took the child to his bosom and bestowed his name upon her. So she's Miss Zuliani to this day. Unfortunately, the mother didn't long survive her marriage, and I'm very much afraid that for some years, while Rupert was soldiering in India, Miss Zuliani was left to disport herself in the choicest available gutters. Was no provision made for the poor little thing? <laughs> you wouldn't ask that if you were acquainted with Signor Zuliani. Oh, yes, and directly my brother came home he did his best to ensure the allowance being properly applied. She is not ill-educated, then? Sir George, with a shrug of the shoulders. Oh, she's so clever. Of course, she has been rather queerly influenced by the migrations of the various opera troops to which Mr. Zuliani and his cello have been attached. But even that has been education of a sort. She's at home in every big city of Europe and America, and thinks and dreams, she says, in half a dozen languages. When Captain Lamorant died, George, you ought to have... I did. I promptly tore her from the weeping Zuliani, and she has been lately polishing at school, here, in England. Princess, rising. That's good of you. The man, Zuliani. Oh, he's now living in a well-earned comfort where she left him, in New York. He has, um, retired? Retired? Upon Miss Zuliani's allowance, I attend to that. She comes to him and gives him her hand. You see the position. The girl's a dainty, charming thing, and astoundingly artless considering. What on earth is to become of her? Does she know the truth? Oh, yes, she knows and I have been obliged to tell our friends the St. Roches, but obviously it's desirable not to label the poor child with her origin. She's a philosopher, though. The rascal will call me Uncle George when we're alone, without the tremor of an eyelash. Princess, thoughtfully. And you think that I? I think it would be a blessed accident if Miss Zuliani were to fall into the hands of some good woman. Princess, in a low voice, partly to herself. I wonder if this girl could be made to fill the blank in my life. She's Rupert's child. She gives him a quick look, then drops her eyes. See her. I will, this evening. Going to the writing table and sitting. Ring the bell twice. He rings the bell. I'll send a note to Mrs. St. Roche. I'll go to the theater. Oh! Rising. But Isabel St. Roche, Miss Zuliani is in her care. 
Yes, and I want to make other arrangements as soon as possible. Why? You see, the rascal kicked at her school suddenly. For the moment, I didn't know how to dispose of her. This is ungrateful to Bella and her husband. Horribly so. But I've been a great deal to Gravener Place during Miss Fay's visit there. And for a young girl, the St. Roche Menage. With a wave of a hand. Uh, you know. Princess, wonderingly. Ah, I don't know. Catherine appears. Madame? A messenger to take note at once to Mrs. St. Roche. Wait, please. Catherine retires. Sir George, approaching the princess. May I come to you again tomorrow? I feel light-hearted at the mere idea. And I, I am quite excited. Giving him her hand. Yes, tomorrow. Princess. Kissing her hand. Accept an old man's thanks. Ah, George, an old woman is glad to serve you. She sits again at her table and is writing hurriedly as he goes out. End of the first act.